0: This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article: Investigation into Conservative Movement's Youth Group identifies hypersexualized culture by Asaf Elia Shalev. An investigation into sexual abuse and misconduct in the Conservative Movement's youth group programs over the past seven decades identified an overly sexualized culture, and collected accounts of alleged abuse from 40 victims. Most of the allegations included in the investigation took place between 1987 and 2019 in the New York City area, and the alleged perpetrators are no longer affiliated with the youth group, according to the report. The investigation commissioned by the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism, the movement's umbrella organization for congregations, was based on documents and interviews with the victims. It turned up allegations of wrongful sexual contact, reports of grooming, reports of an over-sexualized culture, and other boundary-crossing behaviors at programs run by the movement's youth group, United Synagogue Youth, known as USY. The conservative movement's network of Ramat camps is not under the United Synagogue's auspices. One section of the 20-page report is dedicated to the culture of of sexualization within the conservative movement's youth programs and includes reports of inappropriate games and pressure on teens to engage in sexual activity with one another. The report comes amid a time of reckoning over child sexual abuse in the Jewish world. It is the latest in a series of similar investigations commissioned by major uh, Jewish religious organizations that examine sexual misconduct against teens in Jewish youth movements, camps, schools, and other institutions. The report urges USCJ to keep its current practices around protecting children in place. It also urges the organization to improve its implementation of safety measures and record keeping and to advance a healthier culture for teens. The investigation did not corroborate the allegations and did not discover widespread or systematic abuse. According to the report, which was written by UCSJ and approved by Sarah Worley, the attorney hired to gather information and draft recommendations. No one implicated in the investigation currently works or volunteers at USCJ According to Worley's investigation, every adult accused of sexual misconduct has been barred from future participation. The report doesn't name anyone, victim, or perpetrator. At least one former employee of the youth group, former USY Nassau County, Long Island Divisional Director Ed Ward, is the subject of multiple lawsuits accusing him of sexual abuse of multiple teens. He worked for a USCJ-affiliated synagogue until 2020. Following an initial report on one of the lawsuits in the Times of Israel in 2021, additional allegations against Ward emerged. USCJ and USY are named as co-defendants in that lawsuit. A second suit alleges that Ward's abuse took place as recently as 2018. Days after those allegations were published, USCJ launched its investigation into misconduct at USY. The Times of Israel said Ward did not respond to repeated requests for comment. USY must ask itself what about its own identity allowed this to transpire, and what must it do to ensure that it can never happen again, Rabbi Jordan Sofer, one of Ward's alleged accusers, told the Times of Israel in 2021. Describing a time when he says Ward took him into a bathroom and masturbated in front of him, he said, I came up with every excuse I could think of. I'm tired. I can't. I'm embarrassed. I told him I wanted to leave. He told me to stay until he finished. Rabbi Jacob Blumenthal, CEO of USCJ, said in a statement on Wednesday's report, "We fully condemn past misconduct as reported to Miss Worley, and we remain committed to providing a safe and enriching environment for our Jewish teens without exception." The bulk of recent misconduct reported to Worley took place in the New York City area and was allegedly committed by two perpetrators while the programs on the West Coast saw more cases in earlier decades. Among the cases summarized in the report was a victim who said that an adult staff member threatened to blackmail them with a graphic photograph while at camp in the 1980s. In the 1990s, one unnamed adult staff member allegedly sexually assaulted teens across four separate incidents. Five reports to Worley said that a single staff member encouraged teen campers to masturbate as a group in the 2000s, an allegation that was made against Ward in 2021. Allegations in the 2010s included groping of a teen by a staff member and sharing of a graphic video. The report also describes a culture in which teens felt pressure to engage in sexual activity with each other. In particular, the report describes the point system in which participants in USY activities received a certain number of points for hooking up with another USY member based on that member's position in the youth group. Similar systems exist in other Jewish youth groups as well. Multiple victims, survivors, and others reported their concern with the point system and offered it as an example of the hypersexualized culture that they believe pervades USY and its programs, the report says. Some explained that sexualized traditions had been developed and passed down over generations, and in some instances, victims, survivors, said they felt torn between their reluctance to participate in these traditions and their sense that, as teens in the conservative movement, their participation was expected, the report says. Only one of the allegations of sexual misconduct occurred since 2020. The misconduct involved an adult staff member grooming a teen through text messages. The conservative movement's investigation overlapped with a similar reckoning taking place in the reform movement, which carried out three investigations into sexual misconduct, including one that was focused on reform youth programs. And next from JTA, letter from top Dems to Biden. Use All Diplomatic Tools Available to Stop Israeli Judiciary Reforms by Ron Campeas Washington. Representative Rosa DeLauro, the top Democrat on the powerful House Appropriations Committee, is spearheading a letter from Democrats urging President Joe Biden to use all diplomatic tools available to get Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to hold his controversial legislation to sap the power of Israel's top court. The letter also opposes any potential Israeli annexation of West Bank territory and supports the creation of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. The signers express our deep concern regarding the planned changes to the structure of the Israeli judiciary, the fragile security situation in the West Bank, and the threat of partial or full annexation of areas that would most certainly be part of a future Palestinian state, according to a copy that JTA obtained before DeLauro's deadline to obtain signatures. We urge you to use all diplomatic tools available to prevent Israel's current government from further damaging the nation's democratic institutions and undermining potential for two states for two peoples. The letter is notable for its alarmed tone. It also underscores democratic concern at the direction of Netanyahu's new governing coalition, which includes far-right politicians and his plans to reform the country's court system. The legislation being advanced by Netanyahu's government would allow a majority of lawmakers to override Supreme Court decisions and would give the governing coalition full power over appointing the court's judges. In the face of widespread protest of the plan, Israel's president is urging a compromise. The letter also addresses escalating violence in the West Bank singling out Palestinian terrorist attacks on civilians and retaliatory Israeli military raids. More than a dozen Israeli civilians have been killed in terror attacks and dozens of Palestinians have been killed in Israeli raids. Israel says most of the Palestinians killed have been militants, though a number of civilians have been killed as well, including a man who died amid a riot by Israeli settlers in the Palestinian village of Hawara, following a Palestinian terror attack last month. We are profoundly concerned that the recent violence and increased tensions could spiral into a major conflict despite the recent steps taken, the letter says. U.S. Central Intelligence Agency director William J. Burns recently warned that Israel appears to be on the brink of confronting a third intifada. The letter also cites weeks of massive demonstrations in Israel against the planned judiciary reforms, It comes ahead of a visit to the United States by Israeli finance minister Bezalel Smotrich, a far-right politician who is speaking this Sunday to Israel bonds, which sells Israeli government bonds to investors abroad. Biden administration officials have said they will not meet with Smotrich. Deloro, who is from Connecticut, has long been close to the mainstream pro-Israel community, earning an endorsement last year from the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee's Affiliated Political Action Committee. Among other senior Democrats signing the letter are Jewish members, including Representatives Jamie Raskin of Maryland, John Schakowsky of Illinois, and David Cicilline of Rhode Island. Not all Democrats were pleased with the letter. Representatives Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey and Jared Moskowitz of Florida who are both Jewish, released a joint statement that did not directly address the letter, but that cautioned lawmakers not to interfere at this juncture in Israel's internal debates. Regardless of our personal views and concerns, Congress should not publicly intervene in ongoing negotiations of a key Democratic ally, their statement said. Doing so, especially in a partisan way, could undermine those negotiations toward a positive outcome. Next from JTA, Kiev, Jews celebrate their second wartime Purim with renewed resolve and optimism by Marcel Gascon Barbera. Kiev. In a historic building in the most industrial part of Podil, the hipster district of Kiev that once was the heart of the Jewish trading community, a senior and passionate Esther seduces a much younger Ahashveras. She flirts with the handsome king to the raucous giggling of the audience, which breaks into applause when the Purim spiel comes to an end. A year and a few days into Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Jews in Kiev and the rest of the country have celebrated Porm in precarious economic and emotional circumstances under the continued threat of Russian attacks. Still, many of them are in much better spirits than in 2022, when the Jewish holiday of joy found Ukrainian Jews in a frantic state of worry and uncertainty about their immediate future. A year ago, you could see the fear in people's eyes. Now they are very proud because Ukraine has resisted and Jews are fully involved in the cause, Rabbi Arena Gritz of Kaya told, Jewish, told JTA during the movement's Purim celebrations in Podil. She is Israeli, but periodically travels to Ukraine to serve the country's Masorti communities as the director of the Madreshet Schechter organization. Masorti Judaism is similar to the conservative movement in the United States. Last year it was very, very hard because people were in shock, afraid, and they didn't know what to do, said Ariel Markowitz, a Kiev rabbi from the Chabad Lubavitch Orthodox movement, which held its own Purim celebration Monday night. But now we know that we have a strong army, that we have a chance, and many people have actually returned to Kyiv. The year-old war has shaken up Ukraine's Jewish community, with members leaving the country or moving within it to avoid Russian shelling and its effects. Everyone has pretty much made a decision on whether to stay or to leave, and we are reorganizing our community, said Gritzovskaia. Although at least 14,000 Ukrainians have moved to Israel since Russia's all-out invasion started, and many more thousands have found refuge in Germany and other European countries, Gritzovskaia wants to focus on those who stayed. Estimates of the Jewish population in Ukraine ranged before the war from just under 50,000 to up to 400,000, depending on who counted. One of the people who left the country was the former Masorti rabbi in Ukraine, Rumain uh, Stamov, who moved with his family to Israel. Currently, the Masorti movement, whose Ukrainian following Gritsivskaya estimates in the thousands, does not have a rabbi permanently in the country, but the community keeps active in Kiev and other cities, such as Kharkiv in the east, Odessa in the south, Chernovitsky in the southwest, thanks to activists, volunteers, and rabbinical students, plus the visits by Britsiskaya, who first returned for Purim last year. Community life has never been so important, she said. Gritzovskaya pointed to the difference that having access to material help, connections, and emotional spiritual support makes for those who arrive in new cities from places in the south or the east occupied by Russia or close to the front. She acknowledged that some Jewish organizations have ceased their operations in Ukraine and stressed the need of strengthening the work of those who are committed to remain so Jewish life in Ukraine could be as diverse as before and people have options to choose the way they practice their Judaism. Among the Ukrainian Jews that decided to stay is the director of the MILI Foundation, the entity that organizes the Masorti community in Ukraine, Maxim Melnikov, moved to Kyiv from his native Donetsk in 2014 after Russian-backed separatist militias declared the independence of part of the region and war broke out in eastern Ukraine. I came when they started to occupy our land in Ukraine, Melnikov told JTA at the Mesorti Purim celebration in Kyiv, just before taking the stage to help Gritzovskaya read the Purim Megillah. Almost a decade later, war came to me, uh, war came after me to Kyiv, and I don't want to move this any this time. I'm staying. Since 2014, many of Melnikov's friends and acquaintances from Donetsk have moved to Kyiv. While Russia's full-scale invasion has pushed many Jews from Kyiv to move westwards or leave the country, the western cities' communities have received a new infusion of people from the eastern cities more affected by the war. Communities are changing constantly countrywide, and we are trying to reach out to those who arrive, both to help them start a new life and to build our community stronger, said Gritsevskaya. She said the Masorti community in Chernivtsi has experienced a notable revival. Situated near the border with Romania, Chernivtsi is one of the few Ukrainian provincial capitals that has not been bombed by Russia, and thousands have moved there. They have received another family and are very strong right now, she said about the once dwindling community in this historical Jewish center, where she hosted a Purim celebration after making her way into Ukraine in March 2022. The massive uprooting of entire Jewish communities has been experienced keenly by Chabad, which has the largest Jewish presence in the country, with hundreds of emissaries serving Jewish communities in dozens of cities. We've seen a huge increase in those who come looking for help, Markowitz told JTA hours before the start of Purim at Chabad's community center in Kyiv. Many of them, he said, had come from Mariupol, a city bombed into submission by Russia at the beginning of the war. Chabad is one of several organizations providing aid to Ukrainian Jews, including support in obtaining food, medical care, and generators that keep power overflowing amid widespread outages. The rise of the demand for these services is not only driven by refugees, but by families and individuals who have lost their source of income due to the economic disruptions caused by the invasion. There is inflation, there are less jobs, A lot of companies closed and people lost their jobs or are unable to help their family members, Markowitz said. Besides the demographic and economic shakeups, the war has brought changes in the way Jews relate to their Ukrainian identity. Perhaps the most striking has been a rapid shift away from speaking Russian, the first primary language, the first language of many Ukrainian Jews until recently. Even I started learning and speaking Ukrainian and you can definitely see how a new sense of national identity is being born Maria Karaden, a Russia-born Israeli who moved to Ukraine with her husband in 2005, said at the Masorti Purim event. Maya Malkova is 15 years old and one of the most active young members of the Masorti community in Kiev. Last year I didn't even think about Purim so much because I was so frightened, she said, while wearing a necklace with a trezub the trident that symbolizes Ukrainian statehood and independence. But we kind of got accustomed to this situation, and it is great to be able to celebrate Purim again. Next from JTA, Orthodox Union will meet with Israel's far-right finance minister while conserve and reform movements join call to snub snub him by Ron Campeas, Washington. The leading institutions of the conservative, reform, and Reconstructionist movements are among a coalition of liberal Jewish groups calling on American Jews to snub Bezalel Smotrich, Israel's far-right finance minister, when he visits the United States next week. But the Orthodox Union, an umbrella organization for Orthodox Jews, has confirmed to JTA that it will meet with Smotrich. The non-Orthodox groups were among more than 70 organizations to sign an open letter denouncing Smotrich. About half of the signatories on the letter, which was published Thursday, are synagogues. It was organized by the Progressive Israel Network, a coalition of groups that support progressive policies in Israel, after Smotrich uh, said earlier this month that a Palestinian village should be wiped out. He has since repeatedly walked back that statement. The conservative, reform, and reconstructionist umbrella groups represent the vast majority of synagogue-attending Jews and, in previous years, have welcomed senior Israeli officials to their events. Their presence on the open letter underscores the extent to which Smotrich and his far-right allies have alarmed parts of the organized Jewish community. We pledge to not invite Smotrich to speak at our congregations, organizations, and communal institutions during his visit, and to speak out against his participation in other fora across our communities, the letter says. We call on all other Jewish communal organizations to join us in this protest as a demonstration of our commitment to our Jewish and democratic values. Our communities must reject Betzalel Smotrich and his party of hate. The boycott by the conservative Reform and Reconstructionist group stands in contrast to the Orthodox Union, whose Executive Vice President, Rabbi Moshe Hauer, told JTA that he believes Smotrich will use the opportunity to build greater understanding of and familiarity with the American Jewish community and its institutions. We look forward to welcoming Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich to our offices as part of his forthcoming visit to the United States, Hauer said in a statement. We appreciate every opportunity to welcome and interact with Israeli elected officials as it is our responsibility to build mutual familiarity and understanding that will contribute to the deepening and strengthening of the relationship between the State of Israel and American Jewry. Another Orthodox group, Agudath Israel of America, has no plans at this time to meet with Smotrich, its Washington director Rabbi Abba Cohen told JTA. Smotrich arrives Sunday, this Sunday, to speak to Israel Bonds, which sells Israeli government bonds to investors abroad and is closely tied to the finance ministry. Smotrich is also responsible for civilian affairs in parts of the West Bank, which he has called to annex to Israel. He also supports the judicial reform being advanced by the Israeli government, which would sap the Supreme Court of much of its power. Smotrich has a history of remarks denigrating minorities. But he has drawn especially harsh criticism over the past week and a half after saying that the Israel Defense Forces should wipe out a West Bank village, Huwara, where a gunman killed two Israeli brothers. Israeli settlers rioted in Huwara following the attack, burning buildings and cars, and injuring residents. A Palestinian died amid the riots. In the wake of Smotrek's statement, the Biden administration said it would not meet with him. In recent days, Smotrich has repeatedly walked back the wipeout remark, and his latest disavowal came in a lengthy and impassioned Facebook post Wednesday. Smotrich wrote that a friend who is an Israeli combat pilot explained that Smotrich's calls to destroy Hawara could be taken literally, and that pilots believed they could get orders to bomb the village. Smotrich said his friend linked that concern to a recent decision by 37 reservist combat pilots to boycott part of their training. The main aim of that boycott was to protest the planned judicial reform. Smotrich said that he meant at most that buildings lining the road through Hawara, which is a main West Bank thoroughway, should be removed. And so after I failed in this responsibility, and believe me, I am still rattled by the thought that I was understood this way, I must apologize to the Army and its commanders, especially to the Air Force, If I was part of a breach of the important trust between the Israel Defense Forces, the army of the people, and the elected political echelon, Smuldrich said. He added that the experience of being misunderstood by his ideological opponents had made him consider how he may have misjudged those he disagrees with. If there is a giant gap between who I am and how I am perceived on the other side to the extent. But I could be accused of calling for the murder of women and children. Who knows what kind of gap exists between how I perceive people on the other side and who and what they really are, he wrote. Maybe I make the exact same mistake. His apologies have done little to assuage concerns. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, meeting Thursday with Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Talant, alluded to the Smotref dilemma when he decried inflammatory rhetoric as well as violence by settlers and Palestinian terrorists. I am here as a friend who is deeply committed to the security of the State of Israel. The United States also remains firmly opposed to any acts that contribute more insecurity, including settlement expansion and inflammatory rhetoric, Austin said, and were especially concerned by violence by settlers against Palestinians. A number of other groups are not planning to meet with Smotrich, but would not elaborate further. Most prominent among them is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Haaretz reported Thursday that two rabbis known for their closeness to AIPAC, the pro-Israel lobby, have joined protests against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new government and Smotrich's Religious Zionism Party in particular. An array of left-leaning Jewish groups is planning to picket Smotrich's speech. And next from the New York Jewish Week, YIVO will digitize a trove of Jewish leftist history by Andrew Silo Carroll. YIVO has launched an eight-year project to digitize its Jewish labor and political archives, widening access to some 3.5 million pages related to Jewish revolutionary, socialist, and labor movements in Europe and America. The project, the largest archival digitization project in the history of the Jewish Research Institute, will shine a light on the Jewish labor bund whose activities survived the Nazis and formed the core of the collection. Founded in Vilna in 1897 by Jews influenced by Marxism, the bund played a central role in organizing Jewish trade unions and aligned with various socialist parties in pre-World War II Europe. It administered a massive network of secular Yiddish schools, stood up against anti-Semitism, and supported an underground network against the Nazi genocide, activities kept up by members who managed to flee to New York in the early 1940s. That history is reflected in the journey of the archives materials which were seized by the Nazis, but were later rediscovered in France after the German army's retreat. In 1951, the Bund archives was brought to New York and transferred to YIVO in 1992. In addition to providing fascinating material about Jewish political activity in pre-revolutionary Russia and interwar Europe, these collections reveal the impact of an important aspect of the Jewish immigrant community on American politics and social life, and deepen our understanding of the American Jewish experience, said Jonathan Brent, CEO and Executive Director at YIVO, in a statement. Although the Bund was never able to regain its influence after the Holocaust, it has been fondly recalled in recent years by Jewish leftists captivated by its politics. In 2017, the City University of New York historian Daniel Katz argued that Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential candidate drew on the particular, or rather the peculiar philosophy, of Yiddish socialism or Yiddishism that the Bund represented. And next from JTA, Chaim Topol, Israeli actor who played Tevye in 1971 Fiddler on the Roof film, Dies at 87, by Felicia Kramer. Chaim Topol won a Golden Globe for his portrayal of an immigrant to Israel, stepped off the stage in London to fight for his country, and had his sketches of Israeli presidents turned into postage stamps. But the actor was by far best known for his embodiment of Tevye the Dairyman in Fiddler on the Roof, first in the Israeli and London stagings, and then in the 1971 movie that brought the musical about poor shtetl Jews to the masses. Topol died Thursday in Tel Aviv at 87, a day after his family announced that he was near death. He had suffered from Alzheimer's disease for some time. Born in 1935 in Tel Aviv, Topol served in the Israel Defense Forces Entertainment Unit before embarking on a career on stage and screen that took him around the world. In 1967, he appeared as the lead character in London's staging of Fiddler on the Roof, which had been a breakout hit on Broadway three years before. In his early 30s at the time, he wowed audiences and critics with his portrayal of an older character. But it was when he turned his character over to an understudy that his profile truly exploded. It was June 1967, and Israel was locked in a war with several Arab states. Topol was called up as a soldier and returned to Israel to serve serve in what would ultimately be known as the Six-Day War. Israel's swift defeat of an alliance of enemies caused the world to notice the young country and the actor who took part in its victory. He had left London as a star. He returned as a hero. Elisa Solomon wrote in her 2013 book, Wonder of Wonders, a cultural history of Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler became a site for celebration, drawing Jews as well as Gentiles to the theater, some for repeat viewings, to bask in Jewish perseverance, and to pay homage to Jewish survival. The show didn't change, but the atmosphere around it did. In one sign of Topol's breakout moment, his recording of If I Were a Rich Man hit number nine on the British charts, besting Aretha Franklin's respect in July 1967. From there, Topol was cast in the film production of the musical, beating out Zero Mostel, who put an indelible stamp on Tevye as the star of the original Broadway production, as well as a host of Jewish and non-Jewish movie stars. Using only his last name, purportedly because his first name was easily mispronounced by non-Hebrew speakers, he ultimately starred in more than 30 films in both English and Hebrew, published two books, and released multiple albums. In Israel, Topol was perhaps best known for his breakout role as the lead character in the 1964 film Salah Shabbati, about the difficulties faced by a Mizrahi immigrant family. The Ephraim Kishon film was Israel's first Academy Award nominee in the foreign language film category and earned Topol a Golden Globe for Best New Actor. The casting of an Ashkenazi actor as a Mizrahi character and one who embodied many of the stereotypes held at the time by Israelis Ashkenazi elite would prove controversial, although the film is still regarded as a touchstone. Topol won Israel's Most Prestigious Award, the Israel Prize, for his lifetime of achievement in 2013. From Fiddler on the Roof to the Roof of the World, Chaim Topol, who has passed away from us, was one of the most outstanding Israeli stage artists, a gifted actor who conquered many stages in Israel and overseas, filled the cinema screens with his presence, and above all, entered deep into our hearts Israeli President Isaac Herzog said on Twitter. Herzog noted Topol's contributions to Israel not just through the arts, but through his service in the army and his dedication to a nonprofit camp for children with medical needs in Israel's north. Topol was board chair of the Jordan Youth Village, modeled after Paul Newman's hole-in-the-wall camp in the United States until his death. He is survived by his wife, Galia, an actor whom he married in 1956, Three children and their children. And next, an opinion piece from JTA by Andrew Silo Carroll how the late actor Topol turned Tevye into a Zionist. If you were born any time before, say 1975, you might remember Israel not as a source of angst and tension among Jews, but as a cause for celebration. In the 1960s and 70s, most Jews embraced as gospel the heroic version of Israel's founding depicted in Leon Uris's 1958 novel Exodus and the 1960 movie version. The 1961 musical, Broadway musical Milk and Honey, about American tourists set loose in Israel, ran for over 500 performances. And that was before Israel's lightning victory in the Six-Day War turned even fence-sitting suburban Jews into passionate Zionists. That was the mood when the film version of Fiddler on the Roof came out in 1971. The musical had already been a smash hit on Broadway, riding a wave of nostalgia by Jewish audiences, and an embrace of ethnic particularism by the mainstream. The part of Tevye, the put-upon patriarch of a Jewish family in a small village in Russia, was originated on Broadway by Zero Mostel, a Brooklyn-born actor who grew up in a Yiddish-speaking home. Ashkenazi American Jews tended to think of Fiddler as family history. What Elisa Solomon, author of the 2013 book, Wonder of Wonders, A Cultural History of Fiddler on the Roof, describes as the Jewish American origin story. But Mostel didn't star in the film, which landed in theaters while the afterglow of Israel's victory in its second major war of survival had yet to fade. Famously, or notoriously, the part went to Chaim Topel, a young Israeli actor unknown outside of Israel except for his turns in the London productions of Fiddler. With an Israeli in the lead, a musical about the perils and dilemmas of diaspora, became a film about Zionism. When Topel played Tevye in London, Solomon writes, Fiddler became a site for celebration, drawing Jews as well as Gentiles to the theater, some for repeat viewings to bask in Jewish perseverance and to pay homage to Jewish survival. The show didn't change, but the atmosphere around it did. Topol died this week at 87, still best known as Tevye, and his death reminded me of the ways Fiddler is and isn't Zionist. When Tevya and his fellow villagers are forced out of Anatevka by the Tsarist police, they head for New York, Chicago, and Krakow. Only Yenta, the matchmaker, declares that she is going to the Holy Land. Perchik, the presumably socialist revolutionary who marries one of Tevya's daughters, wants to transform Russian society and doesn't say a word about the political Zionists who sought to create a workers' utopia in Palestine. There's nothing explicitly or even to my mind implicitly Zionist about it, Solomon told me a few years back, and yet she said any story of Jewish persecution becomes, from a Zionist perspective, a Zionist story. When the Israeli mission to the United Nations hosted a performance of the Broadway revival of Fiddler in 2016, that was certainly the perspective of then-ambassador Danny Dannon. Watching the musical, he said he couldn't help thinking What if they had a place to go to? And the Jews of Anatepica could live as a free people in their own land. The whole play could have been quite different. Israelis always had a complicated relationship with Fiddler, Solomon told me. The first Hebrew production was brought to Israel in 1965 by impresario Giora Godek. American Jews were enthralled by its resurrection of Yiddishkeit the Ashkenazi folk culture that their parents and grandparents had left behind, and the Holocaust had all but erased. Israelis were less inclined to celebrate the old country. Israelis were what? Not exactly ashamed or hostile. But the Zionist enterprise was about moving away from that to become muscle Jews, and even denouncing the stereotype of pasty, weakling Eastern European Jews, said Solomon, warning that she was generalizing. That notion of the muscle Jew is echoed in a review of Topol's performance by New Yorker critic Pauline Kael, who wrote that he is a rough presence, masculine, with burly raw strength, but also sensual and warm. There's a poor man, but he's not a little man. He's a big man brought low, a man of Old Testament size brought down by the circumstances of oppression. Mostel, by contrast, was plump, sweaty, and vaudevillian, a very different kind of masculinity. The contrast between the two Tevias shows up in, of all places, a parody of Fiddler and Mad Magazine. In that nineteen seventy six comic, Mostel's Tevia is reimagined as a neurotic, nouveau riche, suburban American Jew with a comb over, spoiled hippie children, and a spendthrift wife. Topol's Tevye arrives in a dream to blame his descendants for turning their backs on tradition and turning America into a shallow consumerist wasteland. A kibbutznik couldn't have said or sung it better. Composer Jerry Bach, lyricist Sheldon Harnick, and book writer Joseph Stein set out to write a hit musical, not a political statement, but others have always shaped Fiddler to their needs. In the original script, Yenta tells Tevye's wife, Golda, I'm going to the Holy Land to help our people increase and multiply. It's my mission. In a 2004 Broadway revival staged in the middle of the Second Intifada, the increase and multiply line was excised. In a review of Solomon's Wonder of Wonders, Edward Shapiro conjectured that the producers of the revival didn't want Yenta to be seen as a soldier in the demographic war between Jews and Arabs. Topol himself, uh, Topol himself connected Fiddler to Israel as part of one long thread that led from Masada, the Judean fortress where rebellious Jewish forces fell to the Romans in the first century CE, through Russia, and eventually to Tel Aviv. My grandfather was a sort of Tevia my father was a son of Tebya, told, told the New York Times in 1971. My grandfather was a Russian Jew. And my father was born in Russia, south of Kiev. So I knew of the big disappointment with the Russian Revolution and the Dreyfus Trial in France, and the man with the little mustache on his upper lip, the creation of the State of Israel and Masada will never fall again. It's the grandchildren now who say that. It's all one line comes from Masada 2,000 years ago, and this Tevye of mine already carries in him the chromosomes of those grandchildren. The recent all-Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Ute Roof, a Yiddish translation of an English language musical based on English translations of Yiddish short stories, readjusted that valence, returning Fiddler solidly to the old country. It arrived at a time when surveys suggested that Jews 50 and older are much more emotionally attached to Israel than are younger Jews. For decades, Exodus-style devotion to Israel and its close corollary, Holocaust Remembrance, were the essence of American Jewish identity. Among younger generations with no first-hand memories of its founding or victory in the 1967 war, that automatic connection faded. Meanwhile, as Israeli politics have shifted well to the right, engaged liberal Jews have rediscovered the allure of pre-Holocaust, pre-1948, decidedly leftist Eastern European Jewish culture. A left-wing magazine like Jewish Currents looks to the socialist politics and anti-Zionism of the Jewish labor Bund. Symposiums on Yiddish-speaking anarchists and Yiddish language classes draw surprisingly young audiences. A Yiddish fiddler fits this nostalgia for the shtetl, as does the fiddler homage in the brand new History of the World Part Two, which celebrates the real-life radical Fanny Kaplan, a Ukrainian Jew who tried to assassinate Lenin. Topol's Tevia was an Israeli Tevia, young, manly, with a Hebrew accent. Mostel's Tevia was an American tevye, Hamish, New Yorkie, steeped in Yiddishkeit, it's a testament to the show's enduring appeal and the multitudes contained within Jewish identity that both performances are beloved. And next, another opinion piece from JTA Standing on Albania's Jew Street, I learned firsthand the country's life saving culture of hospitality by Naomi Tomke. Berat, Albania. Stone paths wind through the Ottoman-style houses built into the hillside of Berat, Albania. They lead to an imposing 13th century castle at the peak, the top priority for most visitors to this 60,000 person town 90 minutes south of the capital, Tirana. I had other plans. Albanians take pride in their ancient code of Bessa, which translates to keep the promise and leads them to prioritize guests and religion in their homes. For Albanian Jews or those who fled there from elsewhere in the Balkan Peninsula as German forces advanced during World War II, it promised safe harbor with Albanian families and even throughout entire towns. Albania is the only country in Europe whose Jewish population grew during the war. Barat's Solomony Museum explains this history and that of earlier Jews in the area. At least so I hear. Under the stone arches off the plaza, I found only locked doors. Some people collect souvenir spoons or Starbucks city mugs when they travel. Others collect memories. I collect fragments of Jewish identity. Planning this trip to Albania with friends, I insisted on a stop in Barat to see the small museum. And wasn't about to give up. I'll call her, offered the woman behind the desk at the Ethnographic Museum across the street. Her referred to the caretaker, the widow of the Orthodox Christian professor who started the museum, Albania's only one dedicated to Jewish history, as a passion project funded by his pension. After Simon Vruchot's death in 2019, the museum closed until a French Albanian businessman heard the story. And donated funds to reopen in a larger permanent location. But the call ended with bad news. The caretaker was sick, and the museum would remain closed. I grimaced. Seeing my reaction, the Ethnographic Museum docent did what all Albanians do anything she could to make me feel better, to make sure I enjoyed my stay in her town. In this moment, that meant explaining everything she knew about Jews in Albania. Jews first arrived in the country as Roman captives almost two thousand years ago. But the first major wave, especially to berat, came from Spanish Jews fleeing the Inquisition. The Ottoman Empire, which ruled the area at the time, offered nominal religious freedom this month. the country's prime minister announced plans to open a museum in Tirana dedicated to the stories of Albanian citizens who sheltered Jews during the Holocaust when the country was occupied by both fascist Italy and later Nazi Germany. Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Authority, has recognized at least 75 Albanians as righteous among the nations for saving Jews. You can see the street where the Jews lived, the docent noted. I perked up and jotted down her directions. Six blocks away I found a simple black plaque with white lettering barely the size of my forearm and posted high on a white brick wall. It read, Ruga Hebranche." I stared at it. Two millennia of Jewish history in the country and one closed museum forced me to take heart in a little sign saying Jew Street. Jews have company in this raising of history. The brutal post-World War II communist regime of dictator Enver Hoxha shuttered all religious institutions in 1967, declaring Albania the world's first atheist state. His forces destroyed more than 2,000 mosques, churches, and other sacred buildings, arresting priests, clerics, and imams, many of whom disappeared forever, into labor camps and hidden graves. Religion is the opium of the people, Hoxha wrote, quoting Karl Marx. It felt selfish to pout about the lack of Jewish history when so much religion, so many people, and huge swaths of Albanian culture had been so recently and violently erased. I joined my friends to explore Barat's exceptions to the wanton destruction starting at the Sultan's Mosque, which dates to the 15th century and boasts an intricately carved wooden ceiling. We expected to admire just the outside, since our guidebook said the doors opened only around Friday prayer. But as we stared at the somewhat ordinary facade, a friendly gentleman chatted us up. He spoke Albanian, Greek, and a bit of Italian, the last of which proved useful at matching up to our Spanish and French. He told us a little about the mosque and the casual styles of observance by most Albanian Muslims, But we only realized he worked there when he invited us inside, retrieving a key when we responded with excitement. We marveled at the green, red, and gold ceiling illuminated by a round chandelier. He asked if we wanted to climb up the minaret, warning us about the ascent. Narrower than the width of my hips, the tightly coiled spiral of 94 stairs featured a layer of dust and cobwebs that stuck to our bare feet. But at the top, swallowing my fear of heights, confined spaces, and bugs, I reap the reward. A 360-degree view of the thousand windows that give the town its nickname, flanking both banks of the Asumi River and the double eagle of Albania's red flag flying proudly above it from the castle. Back on the ground, we thanked the man profusely and dropped donations in the box outside the mosque door as we prepared to say goodbye. Instead, he led us across the square to another building, the Halvedi Tekke, or Tek. Light flowed through the high stained glass windows onto the walls of the 700-year-old gathering place belonging to the mystic order of Sufi Muslims called Bakhtashi. Chains hung from the ornate gold-leaf decorated ceiling over a space where, according to our new friend, the Bakhtashi, or dervishes, used to perform their whirling rituals. You want to go up, he asked my friend's eight-year-old daughter. She nodded excitedly and he tossed her a ring of keys pointing the way to the balcony. As she climbed the stairs, I noticed a pair of six-pointed stars framing the main doorway, a reminder of my original mission, even if they were likely not Stars of David. But if I felt sad about missing out on the Jewish Museum, I was heartened by what I did receive, a first-hand lesson on Albania's life-saving culture of hospitality. Next from JTA, The Real Jewish Jewish History in Mel Brooks and Hulu's History of the World Part 2 by Andrew Lappin. Finally, fulfilling the promise Mel Brooks made in 1981, the long-belated History of the World Part 2 brings us Hitler on Ice. For a sketch first teased during the end credits of Brooks' film History of the World Part 1, the leader of Nazi Germany can be seen attempting to land some difficult moves perhaps a triple axis, at an Olympics-like skating competition. Needless to say, Hitler wasn't known as a figure skater, but some aspects of the sketch, such as why collaborationist Vichy France would give the Nazi leader's routine a perfect score, might benefit from a more detailed understanding of the real history that's being pilloried. The same goes for send-ups of Christianity, the Russian Revolution, and Henry Kissinger. All historical events and figures depicted in the series, the first episodes of which landed on Hulu last Monday. Produced by Brooks and offering up its share of his Catskill-style Jewish humor, the eight-episode 4 romp through history stops frequently on items of Jewish interest. Some sketches recur throughout the series. So here is your guide to real-life Jewish history of History of the World Part 2 to be updated daily as new episodes drop the Russian Revolution. In a long narrative first introduced in episode one, the show's depiction of the fall of the Russian Empire is a high-wire blend of parodies and stylistic influences, as well as a crash course on Russian anti-Semitism. It begins with a grody depiction of early 1900s Jewish shtetl life, borrowing heavily from Fiddler on the Roof. Mud pie dealer and patriarch Schmuck Mudman Played by Jewish actor Nick Kroll uses a truncated song and dance number, Submission, to encourage his feisty son to follow follow Jewish traditions and stay away from cosmopolitan life in Moscow. But his son is unconvinced. The shtetl stinks. It's no place for a Jew. Like Anatevka, the tiny Jewish village from Fiddler, the Jews are heavily implied to be living in the Pale of Settlement the only region of the Russian Empire where Jews were permitted to live starting in the early 19th century and lasting until the Russian Revolution in 1917. State-backed schooling and Russianization programs sought to erode Jewish communal identity and replace it with Russian national identity. A small number of Jews were allowed to work or study beyond the pale if they had special skills. In history, The Mudmens, including a mother played by Jewish comic Pamela Adlon, are menaced by the Cossacks, the uh, Ukrainian mercenaries and feared horsemen who carried out a series of pogrom against the Jews, often at the behest of the Russian state. Meanwhile, the gilded Romanov family are depicted as Kardashian-like beauty influencers headed up by Tsar Nicholas II, Danny DeVito, who discovers... Their empire is on the brink of collapse. In real life, the Russian Revolution liberated the state's Jewish population with the fall of the Tsar in 1917, and a large percentage of Communist Party members at the time were Jewish. Like DeVito, Nicholas II in real life was a short man, around five foot six. In the decades to follow, Communist rule would come to have a devastating effect on the Jews of the Soviet Union, suppressing their religion and culture, and purging many of the Jewish party members. Hitler on Ice It's hard to impress a team of international judges when you're the genocidal maniac who tried to conquer them. In this skit, Hitler is despondent when judges from the countries in which he, in which he waged war all give him zeros, with the exception of Vichy France, which awards him a perfect score, and Poland, which awards him with an expletive. It's an uneasy restaging of the line, Winter for Poland and France, from Springtime for Hitler, the musical highlight, in Brooks the Producers. This score reflects Nazi Germany's relationship with the countries. It conquered France and installed a puppet government that acquiesced to Hitler's orders to round up and denationalize the country's Jews. Meanwhile, the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, dividing up its rule with the Soviets and murdering much of its Jewish population in the, in the Holocaust. Unlike the French government, which signed an armistice with Germany after heavy losses to clear the path for Vichy rule while preserving the republic in name, Poland does not acquiesce to a collaborationist narrative. Decades later, it is illegal in Poland to suggest that the country was complicit in Nazi atrocities. But these wartime victories make Hitler the loser of Hitler on ice. Accompanied by his coach, Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister and partner Eva Braun, this Hitler hangs his head in shame as he trudges away to the jeers of the crowd, intending to go shoot himself in the Berlin bunker in a repeat of his actual death by suicide at the end of World War II. If you put concentration camps in people's countries, offers one of the sportscasters, played by Jewish comic Ike Barinholtz, You better be flawless on the ice. The Betrayal of Jesus Titled Curb Your Judaism, the show's dramatization of the events following The Last Supper is styled in the manner of Larry David's long-running HBO comedy, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Kroll plays Judas like he's Larry David, and his Betrayal of Jesus is depicted as a series of comic misunderstandings, which, like the original Curb, often revolve around questions of Jewish identity. Curb regulars play supporting roles as disciples, with J.B. Smoove as Luke and Richard Kind as Peter. Besides uh, aping the Curb mannerisms, including Judas's grumbling about foot washing and the size of the portions at the Last Supper, much of the comedy of the Jesus segment uh, segments revolves around to what degree Jesus himself, J. Ellis of Insecure, has formally renounced his Judaism. The segment depicts how Jesus endeared himself to his followers and introduced Christianity by relaxing many of the requirements of Jewish tradition, including kosher laws and circumcision. Something's off with this Jesus guy. He's trying to phase out his Judaism, Judas remarks. Jewish scholars have generally viewed Jesus as a teacher, but not as a prophet or messiah as Christians believe. Jews have granted differing levels of respect to Jesus, depending on Jewish-Christian relations at any given point throughout world history. Jews weren't such big fans of Jesus during the Spanish Inquisition, so memorably depicted depicted in Part 1. Whether Jesus really did instruct his followers to disregard kosher laws and other Jewish practices is disputed by New Testament scholars and interpreters of the Gospel of Mark. Other scholars believe Jesus intended to live as any other Jew, But Curb Your Judaism does depict Jesus as ultimately perishing at the hands of the Roman Empire, with whom Jews had a contentious relationship at the time, rather than at the hands of the Jews, which was a popular belief used to justify anti-Semitism among various Christian denominations for centuries. Nostra Etate, the influential 1965 papal decree, finally absolved the Jews for Jesus' murder, at least according to official Catholic, uh, Catholic doctrine. A sketch that imagines Shirley Chisholm, the first black female member of Congress, as the star of a 1970s sitcom modeled on the Jefferson includes a role for Kroll as Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon's Jewish, uh, Richard Nixon's Jewish Secretary of State. Kroll is an executive producer on the entire series, which helps explain his regular on-screen appearances. Historians generally view Kissinger, a refugee from Nazi Germany, as the lead architect of the Nixon administration's most controversial decisions, including prolonging the Vietnam War and orchestrating a secret bombing campaign on Cambodia. Some call him a war criminal. The Kissinger of history catches some of that criticism. A throwaway line further suggests he is an immortal demon. Jews in Space Fittingly, the Part 2 opus ends with another callback first teased more than 40 years ago in Part 1, as well as its own teaser for History of the World Part 2 Season 2. The Return of Jews in Space resurrects the star of David's spaceship for the fir- from the first film, but instead of Hasidic Jews piloting the vessel as they dance the hora, we get modern-day liberal Jewish stereotypes played by Kroll, Baronholtz, and Sarah Silverman. Wanda Sykes, one of the show's executive producers, is here too, even as the other performers comment on the fact that she isn't Jewish. That didn't stop Sykes from getting in on the Brooks callback fun. In an earlier sketch, she played U.S. Representative Shirley Chisholm with a mole that migrated around her face. Asked about the inconsistency, she responds, What mole? A variation of the line first said by the villain Prince John in Brooks' 1993 film Robin Hood, men in tights. There's also a space dreidel, locks, and an appearance by Brooks himself as a buff Jesus. It makes more sense if you see it for yourself. Of course, the idea of Jews in space is not as far-fetched as history might have you believe. Since Boris Volanov first soared above the Soviet Soyuz 5 spacecraft in 1969, there have been eight other Jewish astronauts. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening.